Well, it's great uh, to have you on worship today. It's weekend of spring break, kind of tell a little bit. We're glad you're here worshiping with us. All you guests, we've already welcomed you, but just know that I'm the pastor. My name's David. If I can ever do anything for you, let us know. You're always welcome to anything we have going on. We're glad you're here today. Uh, you've come at a time, we're in, in the middle of this sermon series we're doing, entitled Breakthrough. Um, and, uh, and Breakthrough is, just, is taken from the Gospel of Mark. And, and I've said this to start of every one of the messages, and I'll say it till we're through at the end of April. But it's important to understand that, you know, when Mark wrote his gospel about 60 AD, Christianity was moving more and more toward the Gentiles. Gentiles were coming to faith. And so Mark wrote this gospel. In many ways, it's the shortest of the four stories of Jesus, but he wrote it to connect with Gentiles. Now, all four of the gospels can't connect with Gentiles. I get that. But Mark wanted to be sure that he wrote it in such a way as they could really understand it. Not only so that they would come to faith, but that once they came to faith, they could really grow, grow and grow. And he got his information most likely from Peter, who was one of the, uh, the uh, disciples of Jesus. He was with Jesus himself. And so he wrote this gospel as a breakthrough to people who didn't know anything about God or his love for them. And that still holds true today. Now, last week we saw, as I began kind of a, a two-part message, because we're, you know, that, that, it's a long sermon that I cut down because, you know, we have time limitations and all that stuff. And so I talked about breaking the power of the religious authorities, the first part. And so today I come about breaking the power of the religious authorities, part two, from the 12th chapter of, of Mark. And last week I kind of posed a question. I'm going to do it again because it's, it's a question that overrides not only these two messages, but really just in life in general, when we come to Jesus, and the question is this, did Jesus come from God? That's an important, and that's what the religious leaders of the Jews and Jesus clashed. I mean, they, they, they saw Jesus as a threat. And so they were trying to prove that he did not come from God. Because if Jesus doesn't come from God, then you don't need to follow Jesus. It's a waste of time. But if Jesus does come from God, whether you follow him, you may not follow him, but you need to. If he really comes from God, you need to take what he says to heart and follow Jesus. And so where we're going to come today is kind of continuing along in the Jesus dealing with the religious leaders there in the temple. But what I want you to do today is I want you to see a little, I'm going to talk about one last question, but I want you to see, first of all, one last trap. They've been trying to trap Jesus. The they is the religious leaders. Now, if you've been here, kind of remember, we'll put it in perspective. <clears throat> we're, we're in the week before the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're on the Tuesday. The passage we're in is on that Tuesday. Jesus had come to the holy city of Jerusalem on Sunday, and, you, know, the, you know, the triumphal entry. Uh, he had gone to the temple, looked around, came back to the temple on Monday, kicked all the money changers out. We saw all that last week, and he got into this really, the, the religious leaders got into this battle with Jesus over authority. And they always have. One of the things that I've done in, in the Gospel of Mark, because I can't cover every part of it, is I've really wanted to show you this, this ongoing struggle between Jesus and the religious leaders because it's key, really, to understanding so much of the, of the story of Jesus. And so the religious leaders then, they consider themselves the authorities. I mean, who is the authority? We talked about that last week. Who speaks for God? And the religious leaders thought they spoke for God. Here, Jesus, who actually is God, he does speak for God because he is God. And so there's this clash because the religious leaders are wrong. <clears throat> and last week, I told you about those guys in authority, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they were the religious authorities because of position, because of birth, they were it. And they came to Jesus to trap him, dealing with authority, whether or not he truly had the authority. I told you it was a blasphemy trap, and Christ turned it around on them, so they were totally frustrated. But they've decided they're going to kill Jesus. But to do that, they, they understand that they don't want him popular with the people because Jesus is incredibly popular with the people. So they've got to either have the people turn against Jesus or Rome decide to kill him. 
And that's where they're headed. And so in Judaism, not only do you have these authorities who hold positions of power, but you have them divided up into all these different groups. Sometimes we call them parties, religious parties, political parties, whatever. It's not political like we think of it. And you hear about groups like Sadducees and Pharisees and Herodians and, and Essenes. And there's all these different groups. The two primary ones are Pharisees and Sadducees. And they come into play today. And so there, it's the Tuesday of the week of Passover. We pick up in verse 13. They, that is the religious authorities, leaders, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to, or with the singular purpose to trap him in a statement. So the Herodians and the Pharisees came. Now, from, from the standpoint of groups within Israel, the Herodians and the Pharisees were on opposite ends. They actually didn't like each other. We know very little about the Herodians. There's a very small group. We don't know much about them. But they liked Rome. They, they were in favor of Roman rule and occupation. And what they liked most about Rome is they put the Herodian family in that dynasty, kind of, if you want to call it that, that family, that lineage, in charge of the area of Galilee. First, there had been Herod the Great, and now his sons. There's about four different members of Herod's family we encounter. They liked those guys. And they liked Rome. But the other side of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees hated Roman authority. They hated Roman rule. The Pharisees were the largest kind of religious group in all of Israel. And, and they were the ones that connected with the people. I mean, they really should have received Jesus. They were looking for a Messiah that would completely defeat the Romans, throw the Romans completely out. I mean, they despised the Romans. But the Herodians and the Pharisees came together because they both hated Jesus. And the enemy of my enemy is my enemy. That's my, you know, my, my friend. So Jesus was their enemy, and so Herodians and Pharisees became friends. And so they came to trap him. The word trap means to catch him in his own statement. That was their purpose. They wanted Jesus to say something that would get Jesus in trouble. Verse 14. Here's what it says. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are trustful and defer to no one. So they're buttering him up because they don't like Jesus. I don't know if you ever do that, but you know, they're trying to flatter their opponent to get, kind of get his dart down. So everything they say about Jesus is true. They just don't believe it. Now, I've never, if, if I don't like someone, I never try to flatter them. It's just not in me. I can't bear myself to do that. So I really don't have a lot of nice things to say about a lot of people. But anyways, I'm just kidding. For we, for you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Now, all that's a true statement. They just don't believe it. But here's the thing. Is it lawful? Is it permissible by us, by our understanding of faith, to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? It's a yes or no question, Jesus. You've dodged all our other questions. You're not dodging this one. Yes or no. Do we pay the tax to Caesar? Now, I, I get it. Nobody really likes paying taxes, okay? This, but you have to understand a little bit of how this poll tax worked. The poll tax was a tax that every person that was an adult in the Roman Empire paid to Rome for the privilege of living in the Roman Empire. Now, before you, you know, laugh at that or think, well, you know, that's kind of arrogant, there was a great advantage to living in the Roman Empire. The roads were good. Travel was safe. You were free from, the, from enemies attacking you. I mean, you don't read in the New Testament about people attacking Jerusalem. Go to the Old Testament. They attacked Israel all the time. In the New Testament, you don't see that. Rome provided a secure environment. Now, Rome could be cruel. Rome could be difficult. But if you paid your taxes and, didn't, and just followed their laws, Rome was fine. You could pretty much worship how you want to do what you wanted. So there's a great deal of freedom. Now, this tax was one denarius. That's the equivalent of one day's wage. Listen to me carefully. Their tax system taxed him from Rome one day's wage. 
per person. I have two adults in my home, two days wages. By January 2nd, I'm through with my income taxes. You know why April 15th is the income tax day? Because it takes three and a half months to earn enough money to pay your taxes. I wish that's all we paid. They had it easy. But here's the thing. By paying that tax, you are acknowledging and admitting that Rome ruled you. You are acknowledging that you were the subject of Rome. We don't pay taxes to acknowledge that we're the subject to the government. We're not. Our system doesn't work that way. That's how they worked. And the Pharisees hated it. And the people hated it. So if Jesus said, yes, you got to pay your taxes to Rome, the people would have hated Jesus. They could have turned that against him, and then they could have killed him without worrying about the people. In fact, the people may have done it for him. But if he said, no, don't pay that tax, then the Herodians would have gone to the Romans and said, he says we don't pay taxes. When are you going to kill him? Because that's how it worked. They had him. But we keep on. Here's what we see. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius to look at. He said, bring me that coin that you use to pay the tax because Jesus didn't have the coin on him. That's an important thing to consider. And it's not because he was poor. I hear that. Jesus never had any money. He was poor. If you go from the angle that he was always poor, you're going to miss the whole thing. Jesus didn't have the coin. Verse 16, but they did. They brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? He gave them a coin. He said, whose picture's on the coin? And what does it say? And on the coin was the picture of Caesar, Caesar Tiberius. He was the Caesar at the time. And the coin had this inscription, Caesar Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And you'd flip it over and it said, the high priest, Pontus Maximus, the high priest. So this, this, is, this is what the coin's doing. This coin had Caesar's print on it. It's his coin. Belongs to him. He minted the money. It's his. That's how it worked in Rome. And on it, it is recognizing that his father, Augustus, basically was given the divine right to rule. The Senate, when Augustus died, they elevated to Augustus to divine status. And, you know, when Tiberius was his adopted, you know, son, I think it was actually a nephew or something, and he, he gave him, the, he made him, he said he's going to be the emperor. And so by stating this, what Tiberius is doing is claiming divine right to rule and that he is the priest of all the people. Now, this is as close as you can get to saying that you're really God. He didn't say that, but it's pretty close. And the Jews knew that. And the Jews only had one God. And it wasn't Tiberius. And so the Pharisees and the people hated the Romans for this. That makes sense. But you understand, they had the coin. So the fact that they had the coin, they recognized that they owed him the money. It's his money. And they have Caesar's money on them. Now, some of you, you, you got that. I got to carry that. I, I, I have, my money just has a picture of George Washington on it. And it's his, you know, that one I carry ones. Some of you, some of you carry those hundreds. But the good news is you don't let go of them because I've seen the, the ink on your hand from holding on to those things. You don't let go of them. But we understand that's not how our system works. That money belongs to us. We've earned it. But in the Roman world, that belonged to them. And so they replied to Jesus when he said, whose picture's on it? And here's what he said. Um, Caesar's. They knew the answer. That wasn't a hard one. A Caesar's picture. They had Caesar's picture on a coin in the temple. And Jesus, in verse 17, Jesus said to them, 
So then, render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. (laughs) And they were amazed at him, because once again, he escaped. Give back, is what it says, to Caesar, his coin. It belongs to him, doesn't it? It's got his name on it. It's got his picture on it. Pretty much his coin. He's letting you use it, and he wants one of them back. It's his right. But there's a far more important principle that they were missing because they, remember, were part of this system. And they had been trying to trap Jesus because he wasn't a part of their system. You can't forget that. I've laid that out there so many messages. I laid it out there last week. He said, but you give to God what belongs to him. And we just kind of glance over this, but okay, we need to pay our taxes. That's fine. But no, 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 no. You're missing a fundamental altering of the church's future kind of point. Here's what Jesus is saying. Our obligation in life is always to God. That's what he's saying. We give him what is rightfully his. Our primary obligation in life is always to God. That is without question. You give to God what belongs to God. We here at First Baptist word it like this way. Honor God in everything you do. That is your obligation. That principle guides just about every decision I make. This week, we are celebrating. <laughs> celebrating is not the right word. We are recognizing this. Two years ago this week, the whole COVID thing was shutting everything down happened. So that's not really a celebration. Song, but We know it happened. Mourning may be a better word. <laughs> and in that process... We had to make a lot of decisions as a church. And as a pastor, obviously, I had to make them. The guiding principle of everything I did was this verse. It's what I'm going to do. I'm going to honor God. My first obligation is always to God. It was not to your safety. It was not to whatever protocols were put in place. It was not to what any organization told me I needed to do. It was not to science. My first obligation always was, is, and always will be, are we giving God what is rightfully his. So here's the thing. Our commitment, faith, and worship always belongs to God. Can't forget that. And too many times we miss it. Now, everything else, yeah, belongs. There are certain things the government requests of me, requires of me, fine. As long as it doesn't interfere with my commitment, worship, or faith to God, I got to give the government what's theirs. That means I got to pay them taxes. That means when they tell me there's certain things, you gotta, you know, they tell me there's a certain speed I got to drive, I got to drive it or face the consequences if I don't. When your employer puts restrictions on you, he's got a, she's got a right to do that. If you don't want to work for him, don't work for him. As long as it doesn't cause you to violate your conscience, that's the way it goes. And what happens to churches is we forget this. We miss this all the time. 80%, before COVID, 80% of all churches, including Baptist churches in America, were either plateaued or they were dying. I mean, and all plateau means is your next step is down. Only, and, and, and after COVID, trust me, it is far less than that. Why? What's, what's going on? Do they not love Jesus? Well, they love Jesus. What's, what's happening? So here's the thing. Remember this. When your commitment is to a system, a religion, theology, ideology or church, it's easy to miss Jesus. Do you know what was happening 
in front of their very eyes, they were missing Jesus. Think about these religious leaders, the authorities, the ones who spoke for God. They were missing Jesus, and Jesus was literally, 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 right in front of them, and they missed him because their commitment was to a system, to their religion. If your commitment is to anything other than God, you're going to miss Jesus. And this is what happened. It happens to us as badness all the time. We, we get so caught up in our traditions, and I get it. Even First Baptist, we, we recognize traditions. At 8.30, we have a worship service called the traditional service. We go by uh, the traditional way we've done things in worship. And that's fine. We do that. I mean, but, but it's so easy to let our traditions trap us. And to think that if they're not working, but they once worked. They worked 15, 20, 30 years ago, all this work. So what do we do? Well, you know, we got to do it harder or do it better. <laughs> if something's failing, doing the same thing harder or better doesn't mean it's not going to fail. It's still going to fail. Some people get caught up in their liturgy, the church's denominations, the order of they do things, the way they do things. Two years ago, excuse me, two months ago, Troy and I were, had a group of seminary students from another denomination here, and we were talking about worship and what we do and how to do all the things, and they were saying, well, we can't do that because in our denomination, we have a liturgy. We have something, our denomination tells us what we have to preach. And I'm thinking, well, rebel, <laughs> that's what I would do, which is probably why I'm a Baptist, because nobody tells us how to do things. I would not work in any other denomination. And part of me also was thinking, well, this is why your denomination is dying, and they are. You're going straight down the tubes because you guys are stuck in the system. Some churches, they love their theology. Oh, you know, their theology is so pure. And everybody has to be a part of their theology, has to be pure. If, if everybody in your group has to have a pure theology, that is not a church, that's a cult. It doesn't work that way. Now, this is four services. I preach in front of a lot of people. A lot of people's theology isn't all that great. I know, because you tell me what you believe. And after I've spent weeks telling you to believe something else, you still believe the same thing. So it's, it's, that's not it. Systems are not the answer. We know that because Jesus came to break the systems. And that's exactly what he did. He said, your priority is the system you've created. And your priority needs to be to God. The Pharisees left. The Sadducees came to ask questions, and that didn't work either. And so they stopped trying to trap him. But there was still one last question. One more guy was going to come to ask one more question. Some think that this was a continuation of the traps, but it's not. This is a completely legitimate question. And the way Jesus responds is legitimate. So what you see in verse 20 is this. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. Now remember the scribes, Jesus has battled the scribes last week, early in a sermon we saw, early in the, you know, in, the, in the series we saw him dealing with the scribe, and they were the keepers of the religious system, all the laws, the written laws, the oral laws, that nobody could follow, they kept it. He heard them arguing, and he recognized that he had answered them well. He recognized Jesus had given good answers. And this guy was making a movement, so he asked the question, what commandment is the foremost of all? This is not a trap question. This is the question that they discussed all the time. In Jewish life, they always discussed. I mean, they were constantly discussing. With all of the commandments they had, what is the priority? We do this today. Churches, you know, even in our church, we're always discussing what is the priority? What is the main thing for us? So verse 29, Jesus answered, foremost of all is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.4, which is the most known passage among any Jew. 
It was called the Shema. The word Shema means to hear, to obey. He said the Lord is one. The Lord, the Lord your God is one. That was fundamental to everything Judaism believed. It, 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 it destroys the concept of atheism. It destroys the concept of polytheism. It destroys the pon, uh, concept of pantheism, where God is found in all the different things of creation. All have the spirit of God in them somehow. Because God is just one indivisible God. And you worship him, everything you have. And Jesus says you love him with everything you have. Not only do you recognize that he is one, but you love him. Above all else, you love God. And he said then, the second is this. The second commandment goes with this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He took loving God and loving your neighbor and brought them together as one great commandment. To love your neighbor came from Leviticus 19. Now, to the Jew, the neighbor was just other Jews, but Jesus had already taken the concept of neighbor and expanded it to include everyone. So it boils down to this way. Jesus is saying, love God, love others. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. That's it. That's everything. <laughs> and in verse 32, the scribe said to him then, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. And then he says this, there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength and to love one's neighbor as himself, get this, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, know what he's saying. The offerings and sacrifices were at the heart of the Jewish system. They were in the temple the week of Passover. They did all these offerings. They would do thousands of sacrifices and offerings. And he's admitting that their system comes secondary to loving God and loving other people. I mean, he's saying, you're right. You broke our system. Our system doesn't work. More than our system is love. And this is how Jesus responds. And when Jesus saw he had answered intelligently or wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions because they'd already decided to kill him. The very first message I preached to you came from Mark chapter, in the series, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, 15. The kingdom of God, remember? He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus was saying, the kingdom is not far. It's him. And here's this guy standing in front of Jesus. And he says, you got it. You understand it's not the system. Love God, love others. You, my friend, are not far from God. You're about three feet away. He was right there. This changed things so much. Because what begins to happen, what will happen in the Christian faith, is the most important thing will not be our theology, as important as it is. It will not be our practices, our liturgy, our ecclesiology. The guiding, dominant consideration is loving God, loving people. In a few days, two days away, Jesus will have the 12 disciples minus Judas and I shared this with you a couple of years ago in a summer series. In John 13, as they all leave, and he's about, Judas is, going to, Judas is going to betray him. He says this to these guys. A new commandment that I give to you. You love one another. This is how all the world will know you're my disciple, when you love one another. Above all else, we love God and love others. This is demonstrated in honoring God and in sharing Jesus. Above all else, we love God and others. The way we put it, this is how First Baptist puts it. We honor God and reach people for Jesus. That's how we show we love. 
And that's the secret. And here's the thing. This so changed. This so changed the Christian faith from everything else. The Christian faith, as Jesus gave it to us, and as the apostles preached it and taught it, was never a system. It was never a religion. In fact, here's the thing to remember. Jesus simplifies the priorities of faith, moving from religion to relationship. We don't have a religion that we adhere to. We have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus and relationships with one another. Here's what happens. Here's what happens. Here's the religion. It's a system. And here are people outside of it. And the system says, you're over there. We're over here. Come to us. Conform to us and we'll let you in. Nobody wants that. But relationship is over here and people are over here outside the relationship. And all these people over here says, you're out there. Stay where you're at. We're coming to get you. That's what we do. That changed everything. Did Jesus come from God? Oh, yeah, he came from God. Not just because he had authority, because he had something else. He had love. And here's the thing, and it's so important. We, we, we quote the version on 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Anyone who would believe in him would not perish, have everlasting life. And that's the love. And we forget verse 17. And verse 17 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Systems condemn. People already stand condemned. God didn't send Jesus to condemn. They're already condemned. They're trapped in their sin. He sent Jesus to free them. And when we as Christians create systems, we don't love people anymore. We're going to condemn them. Stay over there. Far from God. As Peter was telling Mark, I can just hear him say, Mark, you know, on that Tuesday... I didn't want to go to Jerusalem. I mean, Monday, Jesus kicked everybody out, and know, it was going to be a mess. And we went, and it was a battle. It was a battle, and they were, these, they were coming after Jesus. And we all knew they wanted to kill him. And, it, and then this one guy came, this one scribe. Don't know who he is, don't know what happened to him. And he was the first one to ask Jesus a legitimate, sincere question. What matters more than anything? And we all heard what he said. He said, you love God, and you love people. And then he looked at that scribe, and he said, you're not far from God. And Mark, what I realized is that people aren't that far from God. People aren't far from God. They just need Jesus. They just need us to love them, and in loving them, share Jesus, so they will trust him and love God. That's why when Jesus said the kingdom is at hand, he said repent and believe and follow. So I wonder today, how many of you are not far from God? How many of you are just not far from God? You just haven't believed because you're trapped. You're caught in a trap. You can't get out of it. So here's the thing. Repent, believe, and follow.
if you already follow Jesus, then let me ask you this. Are you still trapped in your traditions? Are you trapped in all your theology? Are you so trapped somewhere that you have forgotten what it means to love other people and love God? At some point, it doesn't matter how messed up their lives are. It doesn't matter how crazy it is. You love them and you share Jesus with them because that's what love does. It breaks out of our system and it gives a relationship to people. Maybe today you need to pray about that. Maybe today you need to come and pray and say, you know, I'm not very, I've caught in these systems I've created in my traditions. I need to learn to love people. We'll come, we'll pray with you so you can learn to love. Whatever your prayer needs you have. And if you're not a follower of Christ, you're rebelling against God. You're trapped in that system of rebellion. Get out of that rebellion against God. Trust Jesus. Here's what happens when you trust Jesus. You still get to rebel. You just rebel against the culture now. You come over to our side. And you have that beautiful relationship where you love God and you love people and you're freed from a system that condemns you and traps you. When Jesus came, he provided a breakthrough. And today, you can experience that breakthrough to Jesus. Father, in sending Christ, you send our only hope. The only way we can come to you. So in the name of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that we can get out of this trap of sin we're in. And come and believe and trust and follow Jesus who will save us. And for those of us who are followers, God, we, we just keep creating these silly systems. And we put ourselves in these systems. And we expect other people to come. Let us love you and love people and break out of these systems so people will come to Christ. In the end, this is what it's all about, breaking through. So I pray in the name of Jesus, let us break through. Amen. Would you stand? You come.